0: up on today's show, Calgary, Edmonton, Alberta forecasted to lead the country in economic growth in 22, but little patch job gains still lagging behind. Hey, did you know we have salamanders in Alberta? We do. And this is a very important time of year for them. We will find out why and more news about UFOs. The Canadian defense minister was briefed about them. We'll find out why. Switching gears now, we're going to talk economy, and we've heard so many good things about Alberta's economy in recent weeks, right? And we know things have gone uh, very well with our province in recent, recent weeks. You just take a look at what happened with the provincial budget. Things have turned around uh, very, very well. You know, We've also talked for a lot of years about diversifying Alberta's economy, right, for as long as anyone can remember. But still, we know the global price of oil sort of is what makes and breaks Alberta's economy, and that we're seeing it happen happen again, as it has many times before. Um, Conference Board of Canada out with a new forecast, and they're expecting some really, really good things for the province of Alberta, and specifically the city of Calgary. Um, we're going to chat now with Ted Mallet, who is the director of economic forecasting for the Conference Board of Canada. Uh, Ted, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Good morning. I mean, no question, right? These soaring oil prices like we're seeing now, that just translates into good times for the province of Alberta. That, we know that, right? Absolutely. I mean,
1: not just the high prices, but, of course, the discount is very uh, very small with uh, Western Canadian Select uh, as well. We're only dealing with a $10 per barrel differential. Uh, so, you know, those numbers are up near $100 for uh, Canadian prices, which uh,
0: we really haven't seen in, uh, in in recent memory. Yeah, it's been some time. And, and, you know, of course, we see what happens with the provincial budget and all the rest. Things go very good for the province of Alberta, at least at that level. Um, now, in your forecasting that you came out with, you see Edmonton. In Calgary leading the country, with Calgary way out in front in terms of uh, economic growth for not only this year, but for the coming years, right? Um, for, for now,
1: that's what we see you. But uh, as you said earlier, uh, Alberta's economy, uh, Calgary-Edmonton, uh, tends to cycle uh, with a little more amplitude than uh, than most other cities uh, across the country. So uh, we, we are seeing or uh, expecting uh, very strong growth, uh, but a lot of that is a, is a result of uh, uh, you know much stronger weakness in in past years early parts of the uh, yeah. the pandemic, as well as uh, you know immediately before that when uh, the the energy cycle rotation was just getting started. So, uh, you know, part of this is bounced back, but, uh, you know, the fundamentals right now look pretty good. Uh, but of course, there's still lots of uh, variables on the horizon. Uh, you know, we, we always have to pray about the weather. Uh, and of course, the, uh, the, the conflict, the war in yeah. Ukraine is caused, uh, you know, huge uncertainty. Uh, we know that it's not just the uh, the commodities and, and the prices, but uh, what effect is this going to have on long-term uh, uh, growth uh, around the world. Europe looks like it might settle down a little bit. In fact, uh, people are talking about uh, a slowdown in, uh, in that region because it is much closer to the, uh, the hostilities. Uh, but at the same time, those have rebound effects around the world as well. So we're keeping an eye out. But, uh, you know, for the, for the short term, uh, Calgary-Edmonton looks pretty good.
0: You know, Ted, like you say, you talk about a lot of different factors. There, and there's always uncertainty and things that are beyond any government's control. But does it seem especially uncertain right now, like you say, with the situation in Europe, what's going on with supply chains, inflation, all those sorts of things? It seems like there's a lot of factors that, you know, are, are, are huge. They're global in scale.
1: Well, I mean, we haven't dealt with this kind of inflation for uh, more than a generation. Uh, You know, going back to the uh, the 70s and 80s, we're in growth. growth did slow down. It, it's a major complication for, for business planning and, and uh, household planning. Uh, you know, do you buy now? Do you, uh, if you don't buy now, then you know, the cost of something is going to be higher uh, later on. Uh, do you really need this particular product? Are you going to substitute something? So a lot more has to go into the spending decisions for uh, for businesses. And, of course, uh, you know, how is this going to play out in, in the wage picture as well? Because in the short term, most people are kind of losing of uh, uh, spending power as yeah. a result because uh, prices are rising faster than wages at the moment. And, uh, you know, some may be protected by cost-of-living clauses or, or uh, may be able to, uh, you know, gain those uh, those wage gains back, but uh, the bank is having to, the sort of the uh, Bank of Canada, is having to really pike interest rates in order to try to combat the, uh, the sense of, of inflationary expectations, which is going to have some major uh, uh, impact on the kinds of spending that require borrowing. And uh, of course, we're all looking at housing for that one.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. The other question I have is, in terms of unemployment, we know things are going really well in terms of bottom line for the provincial government and things like that, and some companies that typically are huge employers in the province of Alberta are doing very, very well and reporting large profits, but our our unemployment numbers remain stubbornly high, higher than most other Canadian regions, right? Do you anticipate that changing?
1: Uh, I think it will change, but of course, uh, unemployment is one of the last things to uh, to shift. Uh, you know, when when businesses uh, feel that they're, they're they've got some uh, feet under them and uh, got some running speed, uh, then they start looking at their labor force and try to. Uh, uh, bring it forward. And of course, uh, perhaps wages have something to do with that uh, as well. But, uh, you know, Alberta was starting from a, a deeper pit. Uh, employment in the uh, resource sector was, uh, was problematic. And of course, uh, many people may be thinking twice about jumping back into that particular sector just because, uh, you know, is it going to be a yo-yo? Uh, uh, movement. So uh, we think that the outlook, at least for the next uh, two or three years, is pretty stable. So I think uh, unemployment is going to come down uh, you know, much closer to the, uh, the Canadian average. And in fact, traditionally, Alberta's unemployment rate has been well below the national average. So uh, things will likely uh, improve there. And of course, with, with more employment comes more spending power. So the, uh, the, the, the kinds of influences in uh, the Calgary, Edmonton, and Alberta economies as a whole look pretty good, even with the kind of headwinds that we're we're concerned about in the rest of the world or or other parts of the country.
0: Um, Last one. We always talk about diversifying Alberta's economy, and we've talked a lot about how oil and gas are really driving this, as they always do, and that's understandable. But at the same time, I know the Premier's talked a lot about tech sector and and other things that are happening. Are you seeing other signs of growth? Are we getting more of a, a broader base in Alberta?
1: Well, I think we are seeing that uh, largely pointed out by, by the lack of perhaps investment in more of the traditional oil and gas uh, uh, exploration. I mean, there is a lot of exploration going on. People are, are wanting to pull out as much uh, uh, oil as possible to sell at, at these prices, but does it mean that we're going to be going back to uh, you know, older forms of, of extraction and uh, processing and so on? Uh, the, the, the energy transition is still here. Uh, we're going to be electrifying uh, all across. Across the country, and of course, that needs new technologies, new uh, new approaches to things. Uh, so, I think uh, uh, with the prices and and the uh, 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 kind of the, the strong growth, it's it's giving businesses the the financial means at which to make these kinds of investments uh, in in areas outside of oil and gas, uh, right. or at least uh, you know, and maybe improving some of the uh, sort of the, the carbon features of, of oil and gas. So, we see in investment. Uh, rebounding finally. It's been a really weak part of, of Canadian economy in general over the past 10 years. So, uh, you know, the, the the conditions are ripe. We hope that businesses are able to respond.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But uh, positive signs ahead. Uh, Ted, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate you joining us. You're very welcome. Uh, that is Ted Mallett. Ted is with the Conference Board of Canada senior forecaster with them, uh, giving us, an, uh, the director of economic forecasting rather, uh, giving us an update on what they're seeing and, and like I say, really good things in terms of economic growth. Um, Alberta predicted to lead the way both Edmonton and Calgary. Calgary one, Edmonton two um, and we know that's Closely tied with what's going on with oil and gas and uh, the price of energy right now, and you know, as long as that continues, things will be good. But you know, good to hear that there's there's other positive indicators as well. Um, now, globally speaking, it's a much different story. As you know, inflation continues to be a massive, massive problem in some countries around the world, uh, reacting to that. Right now, uh, I promised you uh, some, some information on something that is kind of news to me, but as I say, I remember when I was a kid, um, one of my buddies from school caught a salamander in Rundle Park. And little Sarah, you say you had a pet salamander, right? You caught a salamander?
2: Yeah, well, my dad caught him, and then we got to keep him for a winter.
0: And he, and he stayed alive for the whole winter?
2: Yeah, he was alive the whole time.
0: His name was Buddy. And Sarah. It
2: was pretty cute.
0: <laughs> so Sarah had a salamander that she caught in the wilds out uh, by the farm in Two Hills and uh, he lived for a whole winter. So, I mean, they're out there. They're around, and I'm getting texts and pictures from lots of listeners saying, yeah, I run to them all the time. Um, this listener says, yeah, salamanders. I grew up east of Stettler, and we had them everywhere. They lived in our coal bill, our coal bin. That's from uh, Siobhan, and other people say, no, oh, yeah, we, we catch salamanders in our sandbox all the time, southern Alberta. So there you go. Uh, let's find out exactly how widespread they are and why there's a bit of concern around them. We're going to chat right now um, with... Peter Daly. Peter is uh, executive member of the Alberta Amphibian and Reptile Conservancy, also president of the Edmonton Reptile and Amphibian Society. Peter, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate your time.
3: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on board. Always yep. eager for an opportunity to talk about creepy crawlies.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are going to be kind of surprised by some of the information we pass along. First of all, indeed, there are salamanders in Alberta. Um, how many? How many species? Where do they live? All those sorts of things.
3: Okay, We've only got two species of salamanders in Alberta. One that you'll find around the Edmonton area and throughout much of the southern portion of the province, the tiger salamander, Ambystoma abortium. Uh, this is the biggest uh, terrestrial salamander in the world. So even though we don't have a lot of species in Alberta, we at least have a pretty remarkable. They are really closely related to axolotls. The uh, salamanders that stay aquatic yeah. to find in pet stores uh, belong to the same genus, and uh, their larvae look almost exactly the same. That is sort of when they're in the tadpole stage and ready to come out of the water.
0: Okay, when you're talking about largest terrestrial salamander, how how large is it? Uh a really big one can
3: get somewhere in excess of twenty-five centimeters. So by oh, okay. terrestrial salamander standards, that's pretty big, but there are aquatic ones like the Japanese and Chinese giant salamanders that can get to be uh like one and a half uh to one point eight meters long. Wow. Seriously? <laughs> Yeah, uh, they're pretty impressive.
0: How widespread are salamanders in Alberta? Like I say, I think I know one who caught a guy who caught one in the east end of Edmonton. Sarah says she caught one in the Two Hills area. So they're pretty widespread, it sounds like.
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, basically all throughout the Edmonton area and through most of the south half of the province. Uh, But you don't run into them nearly as much as you do some of their other amphibian relatives like frogs because they don't really make any sound, whereas frogs, you'll hear them calling even if you don't see them as frequently. Uh, They're going to be breeding in the same kind of ponds that you'd expect from frogs. But, yeah, they're not making a racket. And generally when people find them, it's out in the country where they have something that's going to be a an inadvertent pit trap like uh, uh, post holes when you're making fences out on the farm or uh, a bit of a depression around your window or a fence or curb that hens them in and something like that. And when I see the most frequently in the Edmonton area, since I don't have property that encompasses any of those criteria is late in the summer when the young ones have uh, gone into their land-dwelling phase, like from the equivalent of their tadpole stage, and are out cruising around uh, after having left the ponds looking for a place to hibernate over the winter. And they are most frequently seen at night and during rain, because like frogs, they have uh, thin, uh, permeable skin. They dry out pretty easily. They like to stay where
0: it's damp. Okay, and they do hibernate. I'm getting some questions from listeners. They, they, They hibernate during the winter then? Yeah. Absolutely, though technically you might call it mating, uh, since
3: hibernating is something that uh, mammals, mammals do. do. regardless, they, uh, they are dormant over the winter and utilize pre-existing things like gopher burrows and such because okay. uh, they're not great diggers on their own. Gotcha, fair Just enough. Now, doing
0: right. some of the reading put out by the groups you're involved with, it I was kind of surprised to find out that uh, their numbers have dwindled quite a bit, and the thinking is... Not entirely, of course, but part of the reason is because they end up getting run over on the roads quite a bit? Yeah, a fair bit.
3: And more of a concern for the tiger salamanders is just the habitat destruction in general. Uh, But if a road is put in close to a breeding site, of course, their breeding site isn't going to be the same as the site they're hibernating. So they're going to be tracking back and forth from those places over the course of their active season. And given the right circumstances, yeah, a lot of them can be road kills. Mm -hmm. Other salamander species, the uh, long-toed salamander, which uh, you can find uh, throughout much of the mountains, they've actually installed uh, some underpasses to allow the salamanders to cross the road safely uh, rather than them all getting stuck on the road surface and being trapped at curbs.
0: Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of people texting me saying, hey, they have these underpasses in Waterton. That seems to be where most people are noticing them. Yeah,
3: they were installed in 2008, and so far they've been really successful helping protect these salamander populations there. And they also put up some uh, temporary fencing that's uh, along the side of the road to help funnel the salamanders towards those underpasses.
0: Interesting. Okay. Hey, I wanted to ask you while I've got you. Um, Last fall, I was walking through the River Valley in Edmonton, Goldbar Park, and literally I have lived on the edge of Goldbar Park since 1973. And I have been in the bush there countless hours over the course of my lifetime. I came across a garter snake. I had never seen one before in the park, but then I was told, oh yeah, I see them all the time. So, I mean, are these reptiles out there and I'm just not paying attention and other people like how, how widespread are these salamanders and snakes and things like that?
3: Oh, you can find uh, garter snakes all throughout Edmonton's river Valley. Now they are generally pretty alert and they, when you, they see you coming and when they feel the vibrations of you stomping through the ground, they're going to take off. And of course they don't really make a lot of rackets. so yeah if you're not paying close attention or not walking in the right spots, then you're not going to see a lot of them. Are they the only snakes we have?
0: Hmm? Are they the only species of snake that we have?
3: Uh, We do have a couple other species of garter snakes that you can occasionally find around Edmonton, but typically it's the western red-sided garter snake, Femmelcus certalis parietalis, that you find in Edmonton. These are the same species that you'll see in the news every year regarding the Narcisse snake dens in Manitoba. In Manitoba, yeah, okay, gotcha. Yeah, those, uh, garter snakes, uh, they'll hibernate in big groups together uh, in underground retreats, kind of like the salamanders, that they call hibernacula, that, where they hibernate. And in many cases, there'll be huge numbers of them. And the uh, red-sided garter snakes are the most northerly ranging reptile in North America because they're really cold tolerant. Uh, Sometimes you'll see the snakes popping their heads out from the entrance of their hibernacula in even March when there's still snow on the ground, the little snake head popping out of a Really? (laughs) Yeah. And uh, some of our other uh, amphibian species here are even more cold tolerant than that. Uh, Probably the most common frog that people see around Edmonton is the wood frog, Lithobates sylvatica. Uh, Brown or gray with a black mask on the side of their face, like Zorro. These are the most northerly ranging amphibians in North America and will actually go as far as the Arctic Circle. Uh, They develop sugars in their bloodstream in the fall that allow them to survive temperatures as low as about minus six and keeps ice crystals from forming in their cells and in their bloodstream, like where we would get frostbite. Yeah. Um, they don't as long as it doesn't get
0: lower than minus six. So, okay, now hang on. You're 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 talking about antifreeze. That that's what antifreeze is. Yeah, uh, yeah, natural antifreeze. And <laughs> yeah, so these
3: frogs will literally be solid without the ice crystals uh, breaking through their cells and killing them. And then in the springtime, they'll thaw out and hop away. And if we could bottle this effectively, if we could reverse engineer it, that would be absolutely revolutionary for things like organ transplants, where instead of having to worry about, well, we've got to get this heart from uh, Nebraska to Tokyo in under seven hours, or it's dead, you could inject it with uh, wood frog sugar, and then you put it on ice, and then you can take a more calm, measured approach to getting it done, or even have a bank of replacement organs for people
0: who need it. Crazy. Hey, uh, just before I let you go, Peter, I'm getting a ton of questions from people on the text line. And, and you know, a lot of people said, oh, I, I used to catch them as a kid. I had garter snakes as a kid. I had salamanders as a kid. I kept them in a tank. And some other people are saying, is that a good idea? Or should we be bothering these animals and catching them? Or is what would you recommend people do if they come across a garter snake or a salamander or a frog this spring?
3: Well, I would be a bit of a hypocrite if I said, Leave it alone entirely because admittedly I spent my entire childhood uh, <laughs> chasing frogs and toads. And it's a really good way of getting people engaged and appreciating some creatures that maybe don't have the best public reputation in some cases. But, uh, these are wild animals and particularly with amphibians, they're very delicate, uh, to handle. So it's the kind of thing that they're best left in nature, but, uh, there's still plenty of opportunity to go out and see them in the wild and appreciate them for the really cool creatures that they are. Um, if folks are interested in learning more about these, they can come talk to uh, representatives of the Alberta Amphibian, uh, Alberta and Reptile Con- Amphibian and Reptile Conservancy at the uh, Reptile Show that's happening this upcoming weekend at uh, the Kingsway Aviation Museum Saturday and Sunday. Uh, there'll be a whole bunch of critters there and. Folks like us who will be talking about our native wildlife.
0: Perfect. There you go. And I think a lot of people are very interested in this. Peter, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate you joining us. My pleasure, Shay. Glad to have been of service. You bet. That is Peter Daly. Um, Peter is a wealth of knowledge. Peter is uh, the an executive member of the Alberta Amphibian and Reptile Conservancy, and also president of the Edmonton Reptile and Amphibian Society. A Mountain of text. It sounds like a whole lot of people have uh, a lot of experience when it comes to salamanders and um, lizards and uh, reptiles and, well, not lizards necessarily, but snakes. Snakes, I guess, is, is, the, is the big one. Karen says, I've seen them at Travers Dam. It's great, cute little guy. And in New Brunswick, I found one. He was indigo blue with orange spots like lizards. That sounds pretty cool. Now listen to this. This listener says, I have three salamanders. Uh, I'm in Lacombe. I found them all locally easy pets you feed them once every couple of weeks in the summer once a month to six weeks in the winter keep the environment moist to wet the sister says "Shay, for what it's worth i grew up in st albert in the 1960s we used to catch salamanders all the time in our window wells they weren't all that uncommon at that time so there you go lots of people with a lot of experience and then i got a really gross picture Sarah, do you like snakes
2: I love snakes. I was just looking at the picture. You see
0: that picture? (laughs) Somebody sent us a a snake ball picture from uh, just outside of Spruce Grove, garter snakes. I don't know how many are in there. It looks like a big bowl of spaghetti. John sent me a couple of texts today. Uh, Hey, Shay, I sent this earlier about UFOs. There are people who say that UFOs essentially being, quote unquote, confirmed during COVID was no coincidence. The news cycle basically went COVID, 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 UFOs are real, COVID, 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 and it worked. Nobody seemed to notice. Uh, Yeah, I I could see how that would definitely be a theory out there, John. And we noticed, we talked about it. uh, There was actually a fair bit of coverage around that report on UAP being monitored by the United States for... Many many years. Now I don't know if we can say that UFOs were confirmed, though. That was one thing they really pushed. What they came, the conclusion they came to, was there are things flying around in the night sky that we cannot identify. Does that mean they're little green men? No. No. Does it mean they could be? Yeah, sure, why not? But we don't know what they are. So I don't know if, I mean, I guess that confirms that there are unidentified flying objects, but doesn't confirm that there's aliens flying those objects. I understand we're splitting hairs here, but uh, fair point, fair point. But we're going to talk about it today because uh, it didn't escape the notice of everybody, including our national defense minister who heard all this talk about the release of these reports and said, you know what? I think as the minister of defense for Canada, I should know what's going on, and made a request just in that way. Uh, We're going to chat now with Chris Rutkowski, who's a Winnipeg-based science writer and University of Manitoba communications professional who has led the efforts to document more than 23,000 sightings since 1989 through the annual Canadian UFO Survey. We've talked with Chris before about this subject. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time once again.
4: No problem. Glad to be here.
0: Okay, so just bring us up to speed here. This is a, some CTV reporting, full credit to them, uh, in terms of this report that we we know was circulated, and it came out uh, last summer, I believe. The, the story is, well, Canada's Defence Minister was also briefed about these UAP, right?
4: Right, and uh, um, the, it was a briefing, and there was a series of, uh, of slides that were presented at a meeting uh, at a fairly high level, of course, and I was asked to uh, provide the information that would go into that briefing, and so you know it may kind of make sense that because Canada is partners in NORAD with the United States, that uh, if the United States is looking into UAP, and actually in Canada we do still call them UFOs. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, you know, it would make sense that the defense ministers on both sides be apprised of what's going on. And this was, you know, our defense minister's version of being uh, brought
0: up to date on what's going on. Sure, which I think makes sense, and I don't know if anybody's going to be too upset about them. But tell us more about these slides. That seems to be at the heart of the matter here where people have some concerns. What are these slides?
4: Well, it's a nice little PowerPoint presentation that was that was given to brief the minister on what's been happening in Canada, and it reviewed the history of what was going on in terms of UFO investigations uh, from the Royal Canadian Air Force and then later the National Research Council and RCMP. And uh, in about 1995, the National Research Council of Canada got out of the UFO business uh, altogether, the RCMP were actually uh, talking to witnesses, interviewing witnesses to get information for the NRC that they were thinking that these things were, in some of the cases, were meteors and fireballs and things like that. Uh, but the NRC, you know, sort of shifted into the Canadian Space Agency's view of let's focus more on Canada arms and, and you know, providing support for the Americans in terms of getting into space. And so they got out of the, the UFO business uh, as such, but people continued to report. UFOs. And so they continue to maintain uh, a presence uh, of one form or another. And so Transport Canada uh, and also Nav Canada, which is a civilian organization, um, looked started looking into what uh, was being reported by pilots. And, you know, pilots have been reporting UFOs to Transport Canada and Nav Canada all along. In fact, we have quite a, a continuous record of Uh, UFO reports being made to Transport Canada. In fact, just since the year 2000, there's something like 500 uh, UFO reports being filed with Transport Canada, mostly by pilots.
0: And some of these are really interesting. Like just going through the slides, there's one from, you know, a year ago, uh, exactly a year ago. Delta Airlines pilots flying over Saskatchewan reporting something they couldn't identify, right?
4: Right, and here's an interesting uh, instance where Americans yeah. were flying over Canada, as a matter of a matter, of course, from Alaska to Minneapolis, and uh, because it occurred over Canadian airspace, so they reported it to Transport Canada. Uh, the pilot was flying at something like 33,000 feet, and... Uh, asked air traffic control in Saskatchewan what's flying uh, note close to him, and they said, there's nothing on the radar close to you. So, you know, this, these are very typical of what uh, has been reported, but, you know, there's civilian reports too, and um, I've been uh, collecting reports uh, and investigating and, and communicating with other researchers uh, for many decades. And uh, since uh, 1989, we've been putting together the, the uh, Canadian UFO survey and somewhere around you know between 700 and 1,000 cases of UFOs are reported every year in, in Canada. And, uh, it's interesting that uh, you know we we do have this this body of evidence. And uh, when the uh, defense minister was briefed on what's going on, uh, they referred to you know this work that uh, that I've been doing.
0: Now you and these documents—it's uh, kind of an interesting. Um, I don't know if it's a sidebar to the main story or not or if it's part of the main story. Explain to me how you got there's people who say you are the reason that I'm looking at these slides. You leaked these these quote unquote secret documents. No
4: I didn't I certainly didn't <laughs> leak them. Um, uh, I do know I know that the reporter did uh, did tell me where he got them from. It wasn't from me uh, that uh, you know I provided the material back in uh, back in May. Uh, of 2021, and uh, I thought I'd never see, uh, never hear about them again. I I had no idea what was going to be presented to the minister, and and, uh, I was quite surprised when uh, the the documents showed up uh, and mentioned me. In fact, uh, my my photo is actually in in one of the slides, so (laughs) it's kind of
0: strange. Um, This information that's contained within these slides, is it extraordinary? Is it the kind of thing that people should be sort of, um, you know, surprised by? It sounds to me like they're pretty much run-of-the-mill reports.
4: Well, the briefing is actually fairly basic. Um, there is an indication you know, one of the slides says that following uh, the slides uh, that there was going to be a discussion and we certainly don't have any information what was discussed. Um, but what's you know it's very significant is this was a high level briefing to the Minister of Defense yeah, and you know we don't have any indication that anything along this line was presented to the Secretary of Defense in the United States. in fact, uh, we suspect that. Uh, something was prepared for him, but we simply don't know. But again, because Canada shares responsibility with NORAD, you'd think that whatever Canada uh, presents to its defense minister is shared with the American defense minister. So uh, it's very possible what what came out of this in Canada was, you know, has been uh, officially uh, recognized in the United States. So I, I think it's significant that the the defense minister of any country is briefed on on the subject of UFOs or UAP, and you know, that's for me that's quite remarkable we're not you know we've gone beyond the, the let's sort of joke about it and yeah and uh point fingers that people have seen things because you know the this is at a fairly high level a lot of the cases are come from pilots and air traffic control operators and uh, police and so forth so you know these are you know fairly sig- significant cases and uh Uh, The fact that we're hearing about some of this at all is is
0: pretty remarkable. Uh, You know, like like the listener said earlier, um, you know, it, it was basically snuck in during the COVID news cycle that UFOs are confirmed and real. That's not true, right? I mean, we've not had a public official come out and say, hey, there's alien life flying spacecraft around Earth. We just, they're saying, yeah, there are things that we can't identify. That's as far as they've gone, which, to be fair, is pretty far
4: it is and you know uh, the fact that it was snuck in the news cycle actually it got a huge amount of huge plate right news. yeah um so it's not that uh, people didn't take any notice it was quite significant but the trouble is that this report in the united states uh, from this task force um, was discovered and uh, unfortunately it was heavily redacted uh, We that doesn't really have enough information uh, to really go on in fact. Um, the, the Canadian briefing uh, describes two cases. Well, we don't even have two cases in this. Uh, in the American briefing. Uh, it just sort of talks in general about the fact that pilots were seeing things and doesn't list any cases at all. So, uh, if anything, the Canadian side is a little more
0: transparent. Interesting stuff. Chris, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. No problem, thanks. That is Chris Rutkowski. Uh, as we said, Chris, is he's Canada's premier, um Researcher and scientist looking into uh, UFOs, perhaps beyond Canada, to be fair. Uh, he's a Winnipeg-based science writer and a University of Manitoba communications professional who led efforts to document more than 23,000 sightings. Uh, as, as you heard, he was part of when this request went out, uh, and it came from uh, chief of staff to the uh, minister of national defense, basically saying, I'm just reading the letter here, saying... Uh, I believe it is prudent to request a full briefing for Minister Sajjan from the Canadian perspective on this issue, just saying, you know, we know what's going on in the States. This is getting a lot of attention. People are talking about this. I think the minister in Canada should be briefed uh, to bring us up to speed on what we're knowing and doing here in Canada. That is to say, a report on any and all research that has done by the Canadian Armed Forces, Department of National Defence, any sightings that have been reported in recent years, any historical information that may be on file, interfaces with other governments on this issue, and any other related information that might be pertinent. In other words, use the broadest possible lens to inform of inform us of any Canadian angle to this issue. And Chris was tapped as one of the civilians to get involved and, you know, he's been documenting these reports. For many, 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 many years, and he has a whole catalog. So he was asked to provide some of the information in the briefing report to the minister. Interesting stuff. But uh, will we ever get to the point where it's like, yes, okay, you know, Area 51 was real? Uh, I don't know. But they certainly did take a big leap forward about a year ago and saying, yes, we've been tracking these, and there's all kinds of things out there that we don't know what they are, pure and simple. Not saying they're aliens, but we are saying. We don't know what they are. 780-496-0063, 403-974-8255. We'll be back right after this. Shea Ganim is on 630Chad, Edmonton's News. Today's talk. See, Sarah, we should have had this music before.
2: I would have, but I was worried we weren't going to get him in time. And then it would just be awkward.
0: I'm glad you're thinking ahead like that.
2: I, somebody needs to. <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, somebody does. Somebody does, and and you do. Yeah, but uh, nice play with the X Files music. Seven eight zero four nine six zero zero six three four zero three nine seven four eight two five five. Logan in Calgary, you're on the air about UFOs. Hi, Logan. Hey, Shay. Hey, what's
2: so, up? There's just one thing that. I feel that you weren't entirely
0: disclosured,
2: if you will. You didn't give full disclosure. Okay. The report in the United States last year, I guess now, yeah. uh, it said uh, in 144 cases yeah. in the last two years, the American Navy it pilots and seaships came into contact with physical craft that were breaking the laws of physics yep. that were not American or Chinese or Russian
0: or, not even that. I mean, there was nothing they could identify.
2: Yeah, but the biggest part that you just you didn't really mention, and I think that needs to be mentioned, is that these UFOs are physical craft that uh, are breaking the laws of physics. And yeah. in 144 cases, the Americans say that they were just that physical craft breaking the laws of physics. We're talking about craft going that like like 10 times the speed of sound, stopping on a dime, and then going 10,000 times the speed of sound, not literally, but you know what I mean. But in the The exact opposite direction, and yeah. And we're talking about F-18 pilots being circled by tic-tac-type UFOs that are about 60 feet in diameter, and these F-18s are actually doing three times the speed of sound, and these tic-tacs are going around them like they're standing still. We're also talking about situations where there was a warship that went from America to somewhere in the Middle East and the entire time they were being circled by UFOs it got to the point that the, all of the uh, the pilots just stopped reporting it
0: <laughs> No I yeah you're right Logan I mean th- there's a couple of those cases there's another one where one of those Tic tacs seems to disappear into the ocean um the, all kinds of stuff the,
2: And so the, the, my biggest point is that yeah, if they might not be saying that it's alien but they are saying that it the they they have almost godlike abilities, and even though they're probably more science based than anything else, yeah, oh yeah, it, it, it's a big thing. It's like it it's is a massive thing. I don't understand. Like Stephen Colbert said, like two weeks ago, America said that UFOs were real, and we're all just pretending like nothing yeah. happened.
0: <laughs> I know, I, I know. Logan. You're absolutely right. And, and we talked about that last summer when the, when all this information came to light. It's kind of like you know I, they they put in the qualifier over and over and over that hey. We're not telling you that little green men are flying around, but what we're saying is there's all kinds of things in the night sky that we simply don't know how they do the things that they do and, and where they came from or anything like that. So yeah, he's a, Logan's right. He's bang on. I mean that's that's what the report said. And there's video uh, that came along with it and all the rest, and then probably open more questions than than answers. Um, okay, Rick in Eckville. I only have a minute before I have to take a break. Hi, Rick. You're on the air.
4: Yeah. Well, two weeks ago I took a picture of a cloud just north of Eckville. I wasn't looking for anything else, but when I looked the picture, uh, there was two pictures. One's got a really tiny blue dot along the top of the picture, and the second picture, it looks like a UFO off to the right of the sun. It's really, really predominant. You can see it like nothing. I've showed it to a lot of people, and they don't really know what to make of it. I I did send it to you, but I guess it didn't go through.
0: Let me see. Uh, I'm going to go back and, and take a look. How long ago did you send it? I think about a, a week ago or so. Okay, send it again, will you, Rick? And I'll have a look. I'll send you both pictures. And you look at the top of the one and that. And, and we'll on do side one. Excellent. Okay. okay, thanks, Rick. Appreciate it. Uh, we have to take a break. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.